I'm Duncan Sinclair, and this is Courage Incorporated, a podcast where we talk to Canada's boldest, brightest business leaders on the actions we need to take to be truly courageous. Canadians and Canadian businesses alike have spent the last seven months feeling the relentless pressures of this pandemic. Personally and professionally, many of us have been challenged to adapt to this new way of living to keep our families safe and our organizations moving forward. But as difficult as the last seven months have been for many of us, Canada's Indigenous communities have been hit especially hard due to significant systemic inequities they experience every day. Indigenous communities today have an infrastructure deficit of more than $30 billion. One of the on the ground realities of this deficit is that many Indigenous families lack adequate housing, resulting in overcrowding that overwhelms any hope of social distancing. Many Indigenous communities lack reliable high-speed internet, which makes pivoting schooling, healthcare, and business operations to an online platform impossible. Canada is home to 50,000 Indigenous businesses, and 99% of them are small and medium-sized. They face multiple obstacles to accessing the financing and resources required to survive the pandemic and thrive in the future. Indigenous workers are systemically underrepresented in Canadian businesses. The economic inclusion of Indigenous communities is critical for reconciliation and a brighter future for Canada. We need courageous leadership on this issue from business leaders and government policymakers, and we need it now. Tabitha Bold demonstrates the bold visionary leadership as president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business that will help Canada thrive post-pandemic. Well, again, Tabitha, thank you very much for being a part of this conversation with us today. And I guess as we get started, can you maybe share with us your leadership journey and, and where did it begin and, and how did it grow? Um, sure. So thanks very much for having me. Important conversation. So I'm actually an electrical engineer. I went to the University of Waterloo and I went into engineering with the plan to someday work with First Nation, Métis and Inuit communities uh, in some fashion in engineering. I wasn't quite sure what that meant exactly, but my father worked for Ontario Hydro and he worked on a lot of agreements with Indigenous First Nation communities across the province while I was in high school. And that kind of inspired me to do something similar. So I went into engineering, I graduated and, and first did real engineering work, consulting and worked on renewable energy projects just to get that experience and technical knowledge so that I could go back and work with communities with that under my belt. Prior to coming to Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, I worked with First Nation and Métis communities in Ontario on renewable energy partnerships and energy planning for their communities um, across the whole province. I did that for about five years. It was really rewarding work. I made some really strong connections in the province of Ontario that I'm really proud of. We got some really great projects built, and some of those projects are still in the building phase. It still makes me very proud to look back on that work. I got to that point and thought, well, this is what I set out to do and I'm here. Where do I go from here? I kind of reached this goal that I had set and I wanted to stay working with communities and I felt where I was, I couldn't continue to do that and continue to grow my career. And I had been involved with CCAB in the past. I really believed in what they did and I was very inspired by the work that they did and the awards that they gave out. So I actually joined the board of CCAB in the May 
And then JP let us know that he was looking for a chief operating officer. And I thought, well, maybe this is the sign to move on. So I made the choice and I don't regret it at all. I hardly look back. Well, that's that's a fantastic story. And, and I, I, you know, you talked about your dad and, and the impact that he had on you. And, you know, who are some of the other role models you look to in your life or mentors that really inspired your path towards taking on this kind of leadership role? Definitely my dad and the work that he did, you know, that that was some of the t- first time that corporations were going out and meeting with communities really in reconciliation before reconciliation was even a word, really. So I always found that very inspiring. And he also took that time to really learn about the history in Canada, about treaties, and really educated us as well. I'm also the youngest of four. So I have two older sisters and a brother who are all in professional careers. My oldest sister uh, is a nuclear operator. So definitely a female in an area where there aren't very many females. So she is definitely someone that I turn to quite often with business questions and sometimes with frustration questions or just for us to have rant sessions with one another. Um, and she's definitely been someone that has inspired me. And I think if I look at my great-grandmother, who actually raised my dad uh, in the community of Serpent River, she was a real leader in the community. She was a midwife, probably delivered quite a few of the babies in the community. But her home was always very welcome. And she was always one who would sit down and take the time to learn and to teach and to share her home. And that that way of life is very inspiring to me and makes me feel very connected to my community and wanting to give back. And obviously this whole idea that you've talked about of you know wanting to continue to take your professional career and continue to connect it back to your your community and communities of Indigenous people was, was a powerful motivator all the way through. I, and I think that's really exciting. And as you then think about joining the board of the CCAB and then, you know, moving forward with that career, what was it about that sort of moment in time to sort of make that shift? Was it because of what the council was doing, other things going on? Why then to say it's time to join the board, time to make that move? So I, I have two boys. They are now 15 and 12. And so that was a couple of years ago. And I think you get to a point, well, I anyway got to a point where I was traveling. I was away a lot. And I wanted to make sure that what I was doing and when I was leaving and missing out on hockey games or baseball games or school events, that I could tell them that I was doing that for a reason to make the world better or to do something to help communities. And I also wanted to show that I could really grow as well and challenge myself. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business in terms of its purpose, the core values that drive it, and how you see that being aligned to you. Sure. So um, Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business was started close to 40 years ago. It will be 40 years actually in 2022, with the purpose to bring Indigenous businesses and communities together with non-Indigenous businesses and communities. As the story goes, uh, Murray Koffler, who was the founder of Shoppers Drug Mart, was out west and he was looking for a new property for a hotel and he found a, a homeless family, indigenous family living in one of the properties, abandoned properties that he was looking at. And then he went into one of the stores and uh, a young indigenous man was being blamed for, for stealing something in the store. And he came back and thought, we need to do better. And what could we do with his friends and his network? So they got together um, with his own network and then also with Indigenous leaders from across the country to talk about what they could do. 
and they struck a volunteer board that was Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business and started to look at ways that they could bring networks together to be able to support Indigenous business and Indigenous communities. And now we have closing in on 1,100 members at CCAB. We are a nonpartisan membership, not-for-profit organization. And we have a number of programs that work to both open the network, because to me, that is something that is so important and so needed for Indigenous youth and entrepreneurs. So through various events, uh, there's network building. There's also a significant amount on celebration. So celebrating those Indigenous people who have demonstrated leadership in the business world and young entrepreneurs who are really forging a path. It's so important that we ensure that we're celebrating and ensuring that we're holding those people up so that more young entrepreneurs can see that there is a path there. Um, and then we also have a program which you'd be familiar with at Deloitte called Progressive Aboriginal Relations, which is a program that allows an organization to look across the organization at four different pillars and understand first what they can do, what they can achieve to work with Indigenous businesses and communities in a good way, and then to set those intents and to move forward on that work. Um, and we've seen a lot of growth more um, recently in the last couple of years in interest in that program. Um, we have over 125 corporations that are either certified in PAR, as the acronym is, or are going through the process of being committed and, and looking at certification. And then we have another program called the Aboriginal Procurement Marketplace, which really focuses on corporations purchasing from Indigenous business. And this is one of our biggest priorities right now, ensuring that we are increasing Indigenous businesses into the supply chain of corporate Canada and uh, governments across the country. You know, you, you joined the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business as a CEO, and then sort of just on the cusp of a pandemic and pandemic lockdown, made the decision to become the CEO. And can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like when the pandemic hit? And what were some of the most important decisions or shifts that you've had to lead the CCAB through in responding to what the pandemic's meant to you? So we announced uh, my appointment to the staff on March 13th which was the Friday before March break. And then the Monday we shut down and all worked from home. So I haven't actually sat in my office since I was <laughs> appointed CEO. And we've only had one time where part of our team has come together. And that was at our recovery forum a few weeks ago. So I think, you know, my first priority, of course, was the team and making sure that everybody had what they needed at home, but really mental health of the team to ensure that everybody was okay but then also making sure they were set up at home to work comfortably also. So that was key for us at first. But then fast and furious programs started coming out and it became very apparent that in this time of a pandemic, especially such an unprecedented time, as an association, we had a responsibility to our members to ensure that those programs were meeting their needs. There are a few silver linings to me taking over at that time. And, and that's that I made a lot of connections very quickly in government that probably would have taken a long time to make under regular times. We did um, have the opportunity right away to start really pushing for programs that were going to be needed to really make a case to say these programs that are going through traditional financial institutions, as an example, were not meeting the needs of Indigenous entrepreneurs. And then also reaching out to our members. So initially I started, well, I was on a call with our innovation, science, economic development on the program. So a daily call, understanding what programs were going to be coming out 
And then I started a daily afternoon open call with any of our members or any Indigenous businesses just to try to share that information and help them wade through the various myriad of, of programs. So in some ways, that also helped me make a close connection with a number of members, members that I hadn't maybe met before. And also, I think in a, in a time where we are all home, to be able for members to know that we were out there really working hard. And I have to say, when we first went into the pandemic and we thought, well, there won't be any travel and things will kind of maybe slow down a little bit. That was definitely not what happened. Things really ramped up for us and the team is so dedicated that they didn't miss a beat. So uh, it's been an incredible seven months almost, I guess. And every time I feel like, you know, we've accomplished something, we're going to take a breath, some new opportunity comes. So it's been actually a really interesting and challenging time. But I think also, if we look at media and Black Lives Matter and a number of the deaths of Indigenous people that have happened over the last six to seven months, there is a time to really have this conversation. And that conversation and the need for us to do this work is maybe more important than ever. When you were talking about the various programs, can you give us one or two examples of some programs that you thought you know really helped or were really important that sort of came out as a result that, that you would say were sort of a great example of what we need more of? The emergency business account is definitely something that was really needed. Unfortunately, for a number of our businesses, they don't bank with traditional financial institutions. And the SIBA originally was only available through traditional financial institutions. So as a group of organizations, so National Indigenous Economic Associations, probably like 10 days into the pandemic, when we heard that this was coming, we sent a letter to the COVID cabinet and to Prime Minister Trudeau and raised this as an issue that only a third of Indigenous businesses bank through traditional financial institutions. And if that was the only avenue to be able to access the business account, then we needed to find a new avenue for that. And in mid-April, they did announce $306 million in funding through Aboriginal financial institutions, which a number of Indigenous businesses use, but still only, only about another third. So there's still a large portion of Indigenous businesses that are funded through private equity loans from their family, personal savings that aren't, you know, with a financial institution. So there's still a bit of a gap there. Some of that has been closed a little bit through additional similar funding, uh, through the regional frameworks. But, you know, it's been a um, continuous us going back and saying, well, this doesn't work for this reason, and we need to fix this for this reason. Even initially, the emergency business account, to be eligible for it, you had to report the salaries that you paid on taxable payroll. And if you're a First Nation business on reserve with First Nation employees, you don't have taxable payroll. So even that small amount that we had to push back with the Ministry of Finance and, and bring in our members from traditional financial institutions who they themselves were saying, we can't get this money to Indigenous entrepreneurs until we make this change. And the ministry did make that change of Minister of Finance. So they're definitely listening. Just a bit disappointing that it's really created a gap when the funding is available to Indigenous businesses. The wage subsidy, of course, was a huge relief to a number of businesses that too, unfortunately, Aboriginal Economic Development Corporations were not initially eligible for that. And there are over 400 Aboriginal Economic Development Corporations in Canada. Some of them employ up to 800 people. Tabitha, can you share what an Economic Development Corporation is in this context? 
an economic development corporation that's established in a indigenous community. And the reason it's done that way is because if you have the first nation as a shareholder, when you go to the bank for a loan, you're considered less risk. But unfortunately the wage subsidy said you were not eligible if you had a government as a shareholder. So we're kind of creating a circle through indigenous business seen as more risky to access financing. So they establish an economic development corporation to have the first nation government as a shareholder, but then that made them ineligible for the wage subsidy. So we did also advocate for that to be changed and it was changed, but it was about a month in between when the wage subsidy was available to everyone else. And when the wage subsidy was available to economic development corporations. And if you look at any of the studies or surveys, 30 days without relief makes a very, very big difference. So I would say those two programs and, you know, that they did roll out this additional funding, $306 million was a big win for us. There's still somewhere to go. And, and definitely as we're in a second wave, just really pushing to say, as you're rolling out those programs, we need to be thinking to ensure that Indigenous businesses are eligible from the beginning. And even small, you know, any entrepreneur, sole proprietorships, how are we thinking about the, the really small business and the businesses that are just getting started? You talked earlier about the idea that, that there could be some silver linings in this in this really sad time of this pandemic. And it would seem that with what you're describing, there's a real learning and education that's going on, you know, for, for governments and, and therefore benefits for private non-Indigenous businesses to better understand the reality of Indigenous economy, Indigenous organizations, how they're funded, and how do we create more balance. And, and perhaps just in your own words, what does Indigenous economic inclusion look like post this pandemic in Canada? Where, where should we try to get to? Might not be right post the pandemic, but eventually I'd like to get to where there isn't an Indigenous economy. It's all the Canadian economy and Indigenous businesses have an equitable place within that economy. But also that as Canadians, we see the real benefit of ensuring that we're growing the Indigenous economy. So if you look at the impact that a number of corporations have had through procurement from Indigenous communities and Indigenous businesses, that impact on the social economic conditions of those communities is very tangible. And, you know, we look as individuals, as example, as consumers, but also as shareholders in large organizations. And, and people will say, well, what can I do? You know, if I'm at the arena or at a dinner party and talking about the work that I do, people will say, what can I do? And I think all the way from your individual level to shareholder level to an employee at a corporation to a leader in a corporation, Procurement and support of Indigenous businesses can make an incredible difference on those communities. You know, I know we talk about the stack quite a bit, but Suncor, as an example, and the businesses in the Fort Mackay area in near Fort McMurray, they have a real target to purchase from Indigenous businesses. Suncor's is 5%, and that can be, you know, $600 million a year that they spend from Indigenous businesses. And the family income in the communities near there is almost double what it is of the average family in Canada. Mark Little, who's now the CEO of Suncor, will say that he really sees that within the community. So he, and he'll say, you know, I've heard him say before that it makes more of a difference to him and an impact to him to know that that money is being spent, maybe not on a golf course membership, but maybe more on a water treatment plant or an elders facility or moving that money is going back into the community. So I think we need to go beyond, you know, sometimes there's always a question about, but it's going to cost more to do business with Indigenous businesses, or there's going to be a higher risk. And that's not at all the case. 
if you look at the number of businesses that do work with Suncor, or the number of businesses that supply to to large corporations across Canada, there are significantly large Indigenous businesses that do that work at no higher cost or higher risk. So as a corporation, you're not spending any more money, but where your money's going is making a bigger impact. And I think as Canadians, we need to all be thinking about that and pushing within our corporations and within our own investments to ensure that where our money's going is making a difference. So I've read that Indigenous peoples in Canada are starting businesses at nine times the rate of non-Indigenous peoples. And I'm, I'm curious, from your perspective, why do you think this is and, and what do these small businesses need to survive this pandemic and then thrive in post-pandemic Canada? I know you've talked about the importance of supply chain procurement, but are there other things around building brand, access to talent, other areas where you think corporate Canada could do more? I think we see Indigenous businesses being created at a higher rate, partially because there is this resurgence and self-determination and, and self-governance and of Indigenous people in general across the country. Also, there is a real desire to ensure that you what you're doing is meaningful. So not unlike my own career, where I've wanted to make sure that whatever I'm doing is making a difference and giving back in some way. If we look at Indigenous businesses, they are more likely to have some portion of their company that gives back. So maybe that's a percentage of proceeds. Maybe it's ensuring that they're sustainable in whatever they're producing. Maybe it's a way of giving back through mentorship. But I can think of countless businesses that in some way their business model is ensuring that they're giving back. So I think that's part of it as well, to be able to have that ownership of your business model and ensure part of that is following the way that you were raised and ensuring that you're supporting your community. And then I think also it's about flexibility. So about making sure that you have the ability to take care of not just your children, but your nieces and nephews and your parents and your grandparents and being able to have that flexibility to stay really connected to your community and your family and partially by owning your own business helps to do that. And then, you know, I think Indigenous people were originally some of the very first innovators and traders in this country. So it's kind of in our genes as well. If we look at what Indigenous businesses need, definitely the biggest barrier is access to financing. And that's something that we've seen for quite a long time. Part of that is the risk that is associated with Indigenous people at a bank. There is definitely a bias there, unconscious or conscious, definitely amongst many people. And banks are really making a big, big difference there, but there still can be barriers. And then also there's barriers just within the Indian Act for businesses that are on reserve that don't own the land. They don't have the collateral to be able to get a business loan from a traditional institution. Then, of course, access to talent also is one of the big barriers, particularly if you're building your business in your community or in a rural setting. So how do I grow and scale my business and stay close to my community? Um, if I don't have the talent surrounding me, you're able to work there. I'm hoping that, you know, in this new COVID, post-COVID virtual working, remote working scenario, that people will be able to live in their communities and work for an organization in Toronto or, you know, be able to move a bit closer to home. And definitely access to broadband for sure, is something that we've seen definitely exacerbated through the pandemic as people move to work from home, for one, and 
trying to school from home in a rural or remote area, even just in a community. So my parents live on Nipissing First Nation. It's just outside of North Bay, like not even a 10 minute drive. And if I'm up there for work uh, in the summer to do a webcast or something much more difficult, there's many times I've had to turn off my camera just to be able to participate properly. Some of those have been webcasts with federal officials. So in some way, it's been a good example or good time for me to really demonstrate the difference that it makes. And, you know, we're really happy to see in the throne speech that they're putting a bigger push on broadband. But post-pandemic, that's something that we're really going to need to ensure that Indigenous people in general are able to recover. There's also a real, uh, as I understand it, you know, an infrastructure issue around housing and having the right kind of housing, sufficient housing, letting people, you know, safely, socially distant. This is one of the things that I understand you're very personally committed to in terms of some of the organizations that you're on the board of and support. Can you talk a little bit about the critical role of, of housing for Indigenous people as well? Yeah, so I sit on the board here in Toronto, Wigwam and not-for-profit housing. So originally started with an Indigenous seniors home on Spadina right now by the Native Centre, for those who are familiar with Toronto. Now we have buildings all across Toronto and, and also traditional housing for new immigrants as well. You know, and there's been a couple of times where I've been a bit overwhelmed, felt like I couldn't make the meetings and wanted to step down. And I go to the meeting and every day, no matter how many new units we add to our list, the waiting list of people and families waiting for housing continues to grow. So the more that we can do to continue to work on urban housing and homelessness, just as important for our Indigenous people as well. And yeah, when you think about in community at the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all told to stay home and wash our hands, you have more than one family unit living in a number of those homes and many with water that's not drinkable, not consumable, actually can't even bathe in it. So, you know, I think the striking thing about any crisis and pandemic is how much it really elevates and demonstrates the socioeconomic gaps that we have in this country. And I think from the beginning uh, of COVID, that was something that we were really thinking. So not just, you know, now you're all home in this really small home that's not necessarily well ventilated either. Having to self-isolate or having to stay within that home really makes an impact on mental health as well. And we've seen more recently too in the, in the remote communities, the difficulty of being able to self-isolate. So if someone does get sick, where are they to go to be able to stay? Or if someone travels out of the community and comes back, they need to be on their own in that one house, which displaces the rest of their family, even to a more overcrowded situation. You know, it's not really CCAB's role from the business perspective, but anytime we have an opportunity to really raise those as realities in the country, we always like to take that opportunity. You described earlier the, the role of, of your uh, great-grandmother and her sort of leadership within the community that she was a part of and in your own life. And within the community of Indigenous businesses, how many of those are, are being started and, and led by women? So in some of our research, we do see that it's about 60% women-owned businesses, but we're doing more research to really look at the impact of COVID as an example on women-owned businesses, Indigenous women-owned businesses. Um, and also on Inuit, Métis, and First Nations. So we did see that Inuit businesses were impacted more than First Nation and Métis uh, in a survey that we did recently. 
And we also did see a, a greater impact on women-owned businesses, like we've seen across Canada, you know, across all small, medium enterprises. Tabitha, I'm delighted you're going to be giving us more insights and helping us learn more on this journey because it's so important for all Canadians to know about being a more inclusive society and how to inspire more women entrepreneurs to create and lead businesses. It's really about your earlier point that economic inclusion is the day we stop counting differences and view our economy as one rich and diverse Canada. So I guess, you know, Tabitha, listening to all the great things that we've been talking about in this conversation, what is it that gives you hope for a more economically inclusive Canada for Indigenous businesses and communities? And, and how are we going to achieve that? What kind of fires you up every day to keep pushing forward on this? There's probably two things. The first is the resilience of Indigenous people and Indigenous businesses and, you know, many of our members and across the country. You know, none of us really knew what to expect back in March. But we've seen so many Indigenous businesses I know pivot is kind of the new <laughs> COVID word, but move to see, you know, how could they innovate what they were doing to respond to the need of PPE and also to respond to this new reality. So how do we move to a e-commerce platform? How do we move to starting to provide masks or gowns? And we've seen a number of our members do that, which is really moves me forward and, and gives me hope that we can continue to persevere. I think also is how we've come together more than ever. So a couple of examples of that as national Indigenous economic organizations. So us, the National Aboriginal Capital Corporation, Indigenous Works, a number of us national organizations from the beginning started to meet weekly to say, how are you getting through this? What are you doing with your employees? How are you supporting your team? You know, we were the first to do a virtual AGM. How does that work? So that type of collaboration really gives me hope that we can move beyond. And it kind of maybe took COVID a little bit for us to to pull together. And we've seen that in our business networks as well. So there's a, a group of Indigenous women-owned businesses that meet every Sunday afternoon on a virtual call. And the whole point of that call is to say, what what's your ask and what can you give? every day, kind of built on the CEO model, but that collaboration as well. And those women holding each other up and supporting each other and ensuring each other's businesses move forward. And I think also from corporate Canada perspective, you know, we started this year about not a little over 900 members and our target was 1100 to meet it, to get to by the end of the year. That was the target we set back in December. And then we get to March and the COVID happens and I've taken over as CEO and I'm thinking, there is no way we're going to get to 1100. How do we even keep the members that we have? And we're almost there. The response from corporate Canada and from sectors that normally wouldn't have been as engaged. So IT organizations, um, as an example, larger organizations like Microsoft and Apple and IBM and the, and large crown agencies as well have this, what can we do? You know, this whole conversation about social impact and social value and what can we do? And they're reaching out to us saying, what can we do to work better with Indigenous businesses and how can we support Indigenous businesses? And that definitely gives us the whole team a lot of hope as well as we move into these new sectors and new organizations that want to do more. 
So, Tabitha, we're sitting here in Toronto. It's October of 2020. Between now and the end of this calendar year, what's the one thing you would say to Corporate Canada where you would say, I need you to go do this now to really help to bring Indigenous businesses and the rest of Corporate Canada closer together? I have two things, but... (laughs) That's even better. (laughs) So, I, I will always say procurement. We have a significant number of Indigenous businesses that can supply PPE. So as you're opening up your office and making sure that your people are safe, I would really ask that Corporate Canada looks to Indigenous businesses to be the providers of the PPE, but also, you know, any other, it could even be small items, your graphic designer or who's printing material or to really support that Indigenous small business And then my other one would be uh, for corporate Canada to show their leadership in these spaces. So as an example, Ken uh, Frieda at Deloitte wrote that incredible article op-ed for Globe and Mail back in June about the work that Globe and Mail is doing. We need more corporate leaders doing that. We need more faces and leaders in this space talking about what they're doing with Indigenous business and the success that they're having, both within their organization, by employing more Indigenous people, by supporting Indigenous organizations and institutions and not-for-profits, and also how they're supporting Indigenous business. Because we all know that partly it's a, you know, lead by example, but there's also a bit of competition, healthy competition there, I think, that corporations are going to see another leader do something and want to be able to be part of that as well. And I think if we can do that over the next couple of months, we'll head into 2021 really in a growth mindset. So Tabitha, you spoke earlier about some of your role models and how does it feel for you now to be a role model for Indigenous leaders and entrepreneurs of tomorrow? Uh, It still feels a bit uncertain and surprising sometimes, I think. Um, I know I, back in March, I met someone at a, at an event of ours and, um, she said, Oh, I'm so excited to meet you. I've been following you on social media. And I remember turning to someone, one of my colleagues and thinking, is she talking, is she talking to me? It's not, uh, it's definitely a new feeling for me. And I guess I'm a bit humble in that. And it's always a bit surprising. And I think, you know, sometimes also it's always still a bit of like finding my place and where my place is as an Indigenous person, Indigenous leader. And that's sometimes a bit of a struggle, but I feel like I'm really growing in that space to be totally transparent. You know, we often get asked the question about as Indigenous people, like, tell me about how you overcame some type of trauma. Tell me about how you've gotten to where you are based on, you know, where you came from and um, I'm very lucky. I didn't have trauma. You know, my, my dad definitely didn't have the best childhood. He lost his dad when he was really young and moved in with his, his grandmother. Um, but he overcame all of that for us, I think. And I was, so I was on a panel and this question came and I, and I really, and that I really said, I, you know, I don't have that. And I think that sometimes is a struggle for that. We, we want to hold up these stories of trauma and not be celebrating the successes and we need to make space to do that. And I personally need to make space and myself as an Indigenous person to, to find my space to be able to lead without having this story of, of trauma that I've overcame. So Tabitha, if a young entrepreneur asked you what it meant to be a courageous leader, what would you say to them? 
definitely, it takes a lot of courage to believe in yourself and set a goal that might be a little bit out of reach of attainable. But I think the biggest thing is that it, it takes courage to allow yourself to change that goal. If it doesn't fit where you are in your day or in your year or wherever you are, I think it takes enough courage to love yourself to say, okay, that was my goal two years ago, but I need to move that. I need to make space for myself or I need to take a step back or maybe I need to change my goal altogether. Maybe this isn't what my passion is anymore. And I think that being able to check back in with yourself and ensuring that the goals that you are setting are still true to the person that you are in the day makes you very courageous, but also allows you to be a leader because you're passionate about what you're doing. To me, that's the most important piece. Well, Tabitha, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation and you've been very generous with your time. Let me just leave with this final question. What is the legacy you want to leave when after a long and successful career as the CEO of the CCAB, you decide your path takes you to the next role? What would you like to have said of you as your legacy in this time of of being a leader in this organization? I would want people to know that I was fully committed to growing the Indigenous economy in a way that supported all Indigenous businesses, but that I helped tell the story about why the Indigenous economy is good for all of Canada and how that is really tied back to the social, closing the social economic gap. I think that's the piece that we really need to make sure that people understand And if I can make that ingrained in people's brains and and education, that there is this opportunity to close the social economic gap by supporting Indigenous businesses, I think that would be, I would feel quite fulfilled. Well, Tabitha, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful conversation. And there's no doubt in the history of our society, it, it is a history that's populated by a number of great leaders of all backgrounds who've really moved our country forward. There's no question that in your courage to both stand up and represent Indigenous people and also in the way in which you think holistically about how are the lessons of family and community brought together to make a more inclusive country for all of us and and a greater sense of prosperity and hope, I think it's really inspiring. Again, Tabitha, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Courage Incorporated. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Courage Incorporated on your favorite podcast player and share what you learned today with those around you. This is how we can become a more courageous country together. We'll be back in your feed late November to talk about the landscape of the Canada-U.S. trade relationship and what courageous moves will Canada need to make in light of the U.S. election. We'll talk more about that then. But until then... Please stay safe and healthy and challenge yourselves to be more courageous. Our country needs you. I look forward to speaking with you soon.